I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 101. Uh, in 1901, uh, pioneer George Mallet released four films in 1901. The most important was The Man with the Rubber Head. Oh. A three-minute short that film scholars still debate whether it invented the close-up. A man experiments with a living but disembodied head. He inflates it and then deflates it. And later, his assistant tries to do the same thing, but blows it up into a huge cloud. Uh, Mallet himself played both the experimenter and the head. An effect made with a specific ramp that moved the actor toward the camera and back. It's a brisk, fun little piece that still sparkles over 100 years later. And, of course, The Man with the Rubber Head is on YouTube. So yeah. You can check it out. Uh, also, you know, 2001, there are plenty of films here. The Pledge, speaking, we were speaking of Mike about Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I really like The Pledge. Um, Sean Penn film. And Jack Nicholson's really good in it. Uh, Memento, of course. Shrek, AI, the... Uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, yeah. Steven Spielberg collaboration. We've spoken briefly, uh, again off mic, about Kevin Smith. The last Kevin Smith film I really enjoyed, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, uh, Training Day, Donnie Darko, Amelie, uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Wow. First turned up. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings still turned up. Um, In the Bedroom, uh, Ocean's Eleven, The Royal Tenenbaums, A Beautiful Mind, Ali, Gosford Park, Black Hawk Down, and uh, one of my favourite films of that time, uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so uh, I have really fond memories of a lot of these because I saw a lot of these in uh, in London. I remember going to see um, Mulholland Drive with a friend of the show, uh, Kyle Hopkins over there. We went to the Hammersmith Odeon, I think, uh, which is quite a famous um, theatre over there. And uh, we went during the day. There was hardly anyone in there. And... Um, Angelo Badalamente's credit came up, and uh, Kyle like stood up and applauded <laughs> <laughs> in this kind of half empty cinema, uh, which was great, great to see. So um, yeah, yeah, and I also remember going to see uh, the Lord of the Rings: Fellowship of the Ring yeah. in uh, in London as well, and we were queuing up uh, to go in, and there was a guy there who dressed, funnily enough, he looked a bit like Harry Potter. He had the glasses and the yeah. scarf on. And he had this huge tome of Lord of the Rings, and he was like reading it while we were queuing up, like getting his last minute yeah. cramming in before he walked in there. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, and I always remember it because uh, I've told you this story before, but I'm not sure if I've told any of the listeners, but because we were in London, um, and I, I I think I went with some, some friends, but I don't think any of them were Kiwi. But um, I got halfway through the film, and then, of course, they turn up with the elves, and Craig Parker from Shortland Street shows up in it. Yeah. And you could tell all the Kiwis in the audience because they yeah. just went, ha, <laughs> <Yeah>. ha, <laughs> so There was like about 10 Kiwis in this audience of 200 all just like, yeah. just pockets of laughter around. Yeah. It's Chris Warner's brother. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, come on. It's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Chris Warner. Yeah. Guy Warner, yeah. Guy yeah, Warner, right. yeah. Um, yeah, so it was kind of like, always spot the Kiwi. But that was the one <clears> that really stood out. I think, I think, well, I was completely immersed oh, in the world. I remember that for a New Zealand audience as well. I can imagine. Back in New Zealand, eh? I bet you. I imagine the whole audience would be laughing there. Like, yeah. Oh. I think it's the way, because the way he comes on, because I've got to cuts to him. And he, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's kind of hero He gets shot. a moment, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So that was 1901 and 2001. Oh, man. Um, so Fellowship and Sorcerer's Stone yeah. at the same, in the same year, that's like a change in cinema happening right in front of you, eh? Yeah, you know, just totally. Yeah, yeah. I think they were within months of each other. I could be wrong. I yeah. Think, I got a feeling Sorcerer's Stone might have been before. Yeah. But um, only by a couple of months. So, yeah. Yeah, real change. Yeah. So, look, 1901 featured two films from a director you'll, you'll hear a lot about in the next few years, and we've also already heard about. Uh, the French illusionist actor and director Georges Millais. The plot of The Gigantic Devil is rather given away by the title, I feel, <laughs> uh, which has a prancing devil emerge and grow to gigantic proportions to terrorise a young woman before being vanquished by a statue of the Madonna that comes to life. It'd be an unremarkable two minutes of entertainment, I think, if it wasn't for the effect to make the devil grow and the rather stunning painted backdrop, which is a real, a real hallmark of the Millie style. Mm. Um, at nine minutes, Bluebeard feels like a real epic of the time, you know, a veritable apocalypse now redux <laughs> compared to the one to two minutes I've been watching to this point. Uh, it follows the classic story complete with bound up corpses, a bit of a shock, but as a devil who appears from a puff of smoke and a lineup of 
helpful angels to help, you know, wrap everything up. Mm. Uh, but the real surprise of 1901 for me is the Haunted Curiosity Shop, which rattles off a punishing number of effect shots for its sub-two-minute runtime. People turn into skeletons, are split in half, only to reform and come back as ghosts or change identities before a magic jar pops out a series of dwarves, clown car styles, only for the dwarves to dance around gradually merging into one. Um, <laughs> it's dizzying, like it's two minutes. Sounds, and look, like, sounds like how soon. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's crazy. And look, uh, as Duncan said, uh, with his, his, his pick, it was on YouTube, all of these are free to watch as well, which, yeah. is, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's been great. It's been a really good education looking at some of these. I'd seen some of these. I think I'd seen The Man with the Rubber Head uh, yeah. maybe at film school or something um, or at uni. And um, But it's really good to go. It feels like a uni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, especially around that time, you see the beginnings of, uh, you talk about spectacle and, and yeah. things like that um, particularly. So, um, yeah, they're really cool to, to watch. And they're, they're kind It'd of, be interesting doing this every month. Yeah, yeah. It's been cool. And also, the, like I say, the, the sense of humour that's in there mm. as well. And some of the, the attention to detail, like you say, in the backgrounds and the and things yeah. like that, uh, they do cram quite a lot into yeah. a short space of time. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Uh, so look, on to 2001. Uh, and there's some guilty horror pleasures in 2001. If you feel the need to feel guilty about finally, finally getting to see Jason Voorhees going to outer space <laughs> in Jason X, that is, or getting to take a peek at Elvira's Haunted Hills. If you enjoyed either of these, I'm not judging. That's not a euphemism either. No, it's, it's, it's <laughs> absolutely. You know, uh, I, have, I have seen Elvira's Haunted Hills. Uh, look, the biggest Hollywood horror was undoubtedly the Nicole Kidman starring The Others, an elegant ghost story with poesque flourishes and old-fashioned, in the best ways, haunted house atmosphere. Uh, but there's also a heck of a lot of horror goodness at the lower end of the budget in 2001 that might not have broken through the mainstream, but that deserves more than just cult fandom or hardcore fan love. Uh, some of these are films we've talked about in depth before. Uh, the late Bill Paxton's film, first film was director, Frailty, mm-hmm. or the genre-smashing French treat, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Oh, ah. Good stuff. Uh, I also had a great time with John Dahl's hitchhiker-esque Joyride. Mm-hmm. I can remember going to see this with Tony, and we'd... Um, have you seen it? Yeah, I yeah. have. So we'd, um, for ages afterwards, go, Candy Kind. <laughs> um, and if you're wondering, like I was, what happened to John Dahl, don't worry, dude's been working steadily in TV mm. on everything from True Blood to Yellowstone. I mean, he's carved out a really great career. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do you know that, uh, I think it was Ted Levine did the voice of, um, and so yeah. he was uh, Buffalo Bill from Yeah, uh, from it's, it's such a good voice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really stuck with me. Eh? Yeah, but he doesn't do the, the actual person or whatever it is. You know? No, he just does the voice over the, the voice, CB. yeah. 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 Uh, Claire Denise's Trouble Every Day was an uncomfortable art house vampire flick with Vincent Gallo. Memory described by Robert Ebert as a character so oily that while hopping out of a shower, looked like he needed to go back for a second shower, <laughs> which is pretty much his career, I think, actually. Yeah, whatever happened to Vincent Gallo, eh? Yeah. He was a real indie darling there. For oh, a while. he totally. I mean, 2001, we're talking, you know, that was like yeah. indie. You Surely know. he would. He just got cancelled pretty quick, though. Eh? Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, what the director of Brown Bunny? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, no, I, I, I find that hard to imagine. He got cancelled. I, I would. It was Buffalo '66 or something. <laughs> like, you know, basically he was treated Christine Ricci like shit. Yeah. Know? Even at the time, she was saying, "Oh, yeah, he was just an asshole to me." Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't tell whether he was going method, but he was also the director or something. You know? Yeah. Like, so he probably shouldn't be. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're probably – that's absolutely what happened to him. I don't even need to look it up. We'll yeah. Just, you know. yeah. Uh, but the pick for me of 2001 is Gilamo del Toro's wonderful Spanish Civil War set goes through The Devil's Backbone. Uh, the orphanage in the middle of nowhere is one hell of a setting for scares, and the ghost that del Toro conjures up is haunting and memorable as hell. Uh, it's a great-looking ghost story, as you'd expect, uh, and one for anyone who discovered del Toro with Pan's Labyrinth mm. to, to go back and seek out. You won't be disappointed if uh, you do. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good film. I haven't seen that since, um, oh, probably since it came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. What have you been watching? Okay, well, look, one of the most exciting new directors to watch over the last few years, for me, has been Robert Eggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I adored his creepy breakthrough, The Witch, and then loved the mad black and white follow-up The Lighthouse so much, mm-hmm. so much. Uh, he's got an incredible obsession with period-accurate detail and a twisted, sometimes comical sense of the macabre. It's hard for me to rank his films, but I guess if I was forced to, I'd place The Lighthouse at the top, right. uh, followed closely by The Witch. But then I'm sorry to say, there's Lighthouse for me down to The Northman. Right. Uh, this is Egger's biggest film with his biggest budget and the biggest stars. Ethan Hawke and Nicole Kidman are a Viking king and queen betrayed in the film's opening by Hawke's own brother. 
after a pretty fantastic trippy scene that involves a gleeful William Defoe. Uh, their son escapes and grows into a muscle-bound, sloped-back instrument of vengeance, played by a brooding Alexander Skarsgård, who, with the help of Alan, Anatolia Joy as his ally-slash-love interest, plots to destroy his uncle, who's taken his brother's widow to be his own wife. Mm-hmm. That's very Shakespearean. Exactly. Skarsgård's Amleth, a name that betrays the connection to Shakespeare's Hamlet, mm-hmm. is brooding and bloody, a blank-faced killing machine who wades through a village early on like a medieval version of the Terminator. And it's the film's humorlessness. Humorlessness? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. It sounds awkward when I say it. <laughs> That's part of the problem for me. I get that it's a tragedy. Literally a Shakespearean tragedy. <laughs> Set in a cold, brutal world. But there's something about the bloodiness, the prophecies, the magic that borders on silliness at times. Mm-hmm. You can't help it, I feel. And I think not touching on that does the film a bit of a disservice. Early on when a drug-fueled Ethan Hawke and William Defoe scrambled around half-naked in the mud, I felt that both actors understood what they were doing. Yeah. You know, they knew the assignment. Or at least they, they got the delicate balance between a darkness and a comedy. The sort of edge the lighthouse walked delightfully at times. Mm. But Skarsgård's moody killer is just too serious a figure for me amid so much silliness masquerading as profundity. Mm. Um, and I'll get to the good stuff soon because obviously there is stuff I really loved mm. about this film. Uh, but I need to talk about my issues with the plot first. And my big issue is that past a certain point, it's just very predictable. Mm-hmm. Part of this is that, you know, it's kind of Hamlet, mm-hmm. more or less. And it's a tragedy built around a revenge plot. So a lot of that surprise is just seeing how Amleth pulls off his bloody payback. And I'm fine with that. But it also includes some moments that actually just really made me groan as I watched it. Right. Uh, so spoiler alert, folks, because if I had to watch it, you need to hear about it. Mm-hmm. At one stage, it becomes clear that Amleth, who has made himself a trusted part of his uncle's fiefdom with no one knowing his true identity, is probably about to be found out. And so he heads for the hills. His lover, Olga, suggests she comes with him, but he tells her to stay. Now, as people who have watched films before know, there is no reason for this unless it is for her to be caught as well and for Amleth to then stage a daring rescue, during which he'll be captured, which, of course, is what happens, because it's what always would have happened. (laughs) Because the script demanded he be captured at some point to face that long, dark night of the soul, Mm. you know? But did it have to feel this clumsy, this obvious? Amleth is, is of course, chained up, tortured, and left to die. And like every hero has ever been left to die, he naturally does not die. Mm. I've never seen that happen in a film. I'm (laughs) convinced it's never going to happen, you know? In fact, his guardian even attempts to use Amleth's own blade, becomes frustrated, throws it on the ground for a hero to later recover before he storms off to leave him unguarded at that point. Right. I just wish all of this could have been scripted with a little more elegance, a little less clunkiness, because as viewers, we've seen this stuff so often before at this point, Mm. you know? It'd be nice to see it done with a little freshness, which leads me to what I did like, which is mostly some extraordinary visuals. Uh, A murderous trudge through a mud-soaked burning village, Bjork as an eyeless witch, Uh, a Valkyrie riding a white horse across the sky, two naked men fighting amid streams of lava in the end, which I loved. This is great stuff, and I'm happy the Northman exists. But I wonder if in trying, as he claimed, to create the most entertaining Robert Eggers film he could, Robert Eggers has slightly lost touch with what makes him such a unique and special filmmaker in the first place. You're right. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen this, so... Um, oh, I, I was a bit worried you might have, and then you were just going to chime in with, well, I loved it. No, no, I haven't seen this one. So I'd, I'd kind of heard mixed things about this. Like, some people really liked it. Like really, yeah, look, really everyone I spoke it. to did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there were... Yeah, there was kind of some middling stuff as well. So, yeah, I um, it's probably one of those ones that I was going to wait till. Oh. yeah, you know, I could probably kick back and watch. But yeah, like yeah. I feel like this is the first time I've actually talked about my feelings about it because yeah, every it's time a safe, I, it's a space, safe space here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but every time, uh, every other time I've said, said to someone, "Oh, have you watched the Northman," they said, "Yeah, it's fantastic." And it's like, right. "Okay, I'm not going to talk to you about the Northman." <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I don't hate it clearly. Yeah, and, yeah, it's yeah. just. I've loved his films up to this point. Yeah. And there's just some things that happen. Mostly it's the narrative decisions, which yeah. are just, oh, I, I find difficult. Yeah. And I think it's like you say, it's kind of the, um, the sense that the audience has seen it before. That would be frustrating. You know? Well, I mean, they're tropes at this point And, you know, yeah. if, if you can't find a way to re-energize those or subvert them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what about you? What have you been watching? Um, well, I actually uh, kicked back and watched uh, Bullet Train. Um, you did? I did, yes. Went to the movies to see it. Oof. 
And um, I've got to say, uh, in the last probably month or so, I've kind of fallen back in love with going to the movies as well. Oh, cool. So the actual, you know, being kind yeah. of keen to yeah. get back into it. Oh, let's go back and, and check it out. So um, Brad Pitt is an underworld mercenary who must snatch a briefcase from occupants aboard a bullet train from Tokyo to Kyoto. Um, I, I never realized the anagrams of each other, basically. Tokyo and Kyoto. Oh. Yeah, interesting. Um, little does he know that he is not alone in his pursuit of the item. Now, uh, David Leach, director of Deadpool 2 yep. and Atomic Blonde, brings qualities from both those films to Bullet Train. Deadpan and broad humor clashing with dynamic visuals and madcap energy who deliver probably the year's most distinct action film. Wow, okay. Uh, Bullet Train reminds me of Joe Carnahan's Smoking Aces, yep. replete with nosebleed-inducing tonal shifts, really convoluted backstories, and a menagerie of wild characters all going for the same goal. And, of course, all set to the backdrop of crazy violence. Uh, in this sense, they were just so twisted, you know, Smoking Aces and Bullet yep. Train. I was like, oh, man, like every kind of 10 minutes I was going, this really does remind me of that. Um, funnily enough... Of the cast, it is the familiarity of Brad Pitt who does the most for the audience. Uh, a kind of surfer dude in search of inner peace who also happens to have John Wick levels of fighting skills. Yeah. Um, but he's he kind of has the one performance that you can ground yourself with in the movie because everyone else is so wild and caricaturish almost. Um, Aaron Taylor Johnson, so memorable in Nocturnal Animals, also gets to flex Although the less said about his partner's wonky Cockney accent, the better. <laughs> uh, so memorable was rapper Paperboy from TV's Atlanta. Brian Tyree Henry is fun, but his and Taylor Johnson's banter and Cockney accents remind us that we're not in a good Guy Ritchie flick. <laughs> um, and the interactions probably make for an adequate barometer of an audience's tastes. Like They just have these non-sequitur Tarantino-esque diatribes about citrus and Thomas the Tank Engine. They, they, just, they just take over from the plot yeah. for too long. But many may be amused by it. Uh, to me, it felt quite written, though. Um, and I was kind of like, ah, oh, this just feels unnecessary. There's yeah. a lot of that. And this film has it's kind of riddled with unnecessary stuff. Like, you just question whether any of it is really necessary. The film, having said that, the film is a roller coaster of fun, a comic book come to life with all the physics and logic defying that comes along with that. Uh, this film has come under fire, I found out later, for being based on a Japanese comic, but whitewashed. Oh, really? Uh, with only two central characters being Asian at all in this film. Now, if you get Brad Pitt, I can forgive you wanting to cast him. Yeah. I'm like, okay, it's Brad Pitt, though. But Joey King's role could easily have been cast differently, especially as Karen Fukuhaga, a dual-lingual Japanese-American actress who has done superhero work in Suicide Squad and TV show The Boys, appears in Bullet Train only as like a drink server. Wow. And I yeah, was yeah. like, and I thought, oh, well, she's just kind of like a... a this will come back, a right. A cameo yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Oh, I didn't really know her, but when I looked into this, I was like, oh, she's actually been in, you know, yeah. these things. She played Katana and Suicide Squad and stuff. Not that I've seen Suicide Squad, but, she, you know, she's she's actually done that. But in here, she, you'd think she was a Japanese actress. I'm like, why didn't you cast her? Yeah. Um, but even with all this eccentricities and tonal lottery there's something hard to dislike about bullet train the whole thing is like an immersive experience into a cartoon the yeah. broad characters silly payoffs the luxury of the environment the different themes of the individual carriages they travel through uh, when the entire film is a celebration of the implausible um, it's kind of good fun to give into its unpredictable charms you know you're just kind of enjoying the wild ride mm. you know like the story you'd yeah, you know, I almost defy you to explain to me what the story is. Yeah, yeah. But when you got to the end of it, but, I mean, yeah. But visually, it's just a treat. It's a great fun kind of you know nutty film. On, on paper, that sounds like the sort of story I'd go for because it seems mm. simple and clear cut in many ways. You know, you've yeah. got to get this item. A whole bunch of other people want it. Yeah, it's a MacGuffin. It's 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 great. I like it and I like the idea of the setting. I haven't seen this film because I got given free tickets mm -hmm. and then got COVID. Ah, oh, right. And yeah. gave away my tickets to my brother who hopefully saw it. I don't know. Yeah. I've still got the sweatshirt I got, though. <laughs> so I, I frequently remember my bullet train sweatshirt, even though I've not seen the film. Yeah, that's like me. I've got my Hostel 2 backpack. And you haven't seen Hostel 2? I've never seen Hostel 2. I've seen Hostel 2. Yeah. Yeah. But I got given the Hostel You're better off with the backpack. <laughs> <laughs> you win. I was just disappointed there wasn't like a severed head inside it or something. Oh, you know, like just, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is something else. When the big man was killed, you must have wanted it. Its blood was on the leaves. 
bleeds, we can kill it. Okay, and uh, welcome to No Comps. Um, this is uh, the part of the uh, podcast where we look at the latest release. We're doing a double feature tonight, aren't we, Simon? Yeah. And uh, we've kind of gone for alien invasion things mm-hmm. to both of these movies that have just been released. Uh, and the first one is Nope, written and directed by Jordan Peele, starring Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, and Stephen Yoon. O.J. Haywood and his sister Emerald are the latest in a proud line of horse trainers to the movie industry, a line that most folk may have forgotten, though they can trace their family's cinematic roots right back to the first Im- images on celluloid. But now, something strange is going on down at their ranch. A cloud that doesn't move, animals that vanish in the night. With the help of a surveillance tech guy, they set out to capture proof of the strange presence on their farm. But what has, that, what has all this got to do with former child star Ricky Duke Park and his western-themed fun park? Or the bloody tragedy he witnessed on a short-lived sitcom, Gordy's Home. <laughs> Hard one to get down without spoilers. Um, though I'm less precious about spoilers now than when I first saw Nope. Not because I'm less worried about giving anything away, but more that I've noticed the at first vague, mysterious marketing campaign gave way to a more, a slightly more on-the-nose approach. You know. Mm. So let's get this out of the way. UFOs, aliens. Nope fits into that kind of time-honored genre. Even if I'm not 100% sure, I know exactly what's going on. I still feel comfortable talking about it alongside other films about invaders from beyond the stars, which is why we've, yeah, that's right. That's why we're reviewing it alongside Prey. Yeah. And uh, look, I suspect Jordan Peele's third film will spark much debate about whether the horror film director has given the audience a horror film or not. Yeah, right. Um, It feels more in line with Jaws, which is a horror film that also doubles as an adventure film. Sure. Uh, Or the way the original Predator has kind of more action film trappings than horror ones. Here, Peel takes his time far more than he ever did in his first two releases. Mm. Nope's first hour is almost suspense-free. He does open with glimpses of violence. Uh, the, the promise that the longer the film goes on, the more he will reveal from a horrific chimpanzee rampage on the set of a 90s sitcom where the title star of the show, Gordy's House, massacres his co-stars. Um, you know, and, and that opening is, uh, is quite interesting. Also because I kind of got almost got semi-confused because it's uh, Monkey Poor Productions, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's got like this the logo attached to it and it has all these monkey sounds and then you kind of cut to it and I'm like, is this some extended is this part of the- production company logo intro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't actually sure whether the movie had started. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember this Family Guy. Um, do you remember this Family Guy bit where he's like at a movie and they, he keeps thinking the movie started, but it's, it's more logos coming up <laughs> yeah, over and over right. again. You know, yeah. it's like oh, this is interesting. It's a boy walking in a park, and it's boy in the park productions <laughs> comes up. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like here. Yeah, where I was like, look, oh, this is kind of confusing. I, I talk about this a bit later on, but um, I I tried to find a copy of the script because I had some questions about um. I just wanted to see what the original shooting script was. That was not originally at the beginning of the film. That was right. an edit decision to open. Okay, interesting. You know, yep. you know to, to tease that for, for later on. But right. look, Get Out, for me, was one of those films you walked out with an audience talking about how to approach the theme of racial inequality in the very the very year that Obama was replaced by goddamn Donald Trump. <laughs> um, nope is one of those so films. you Trump fans, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, if you've been listening long, this long, eh, and you're like shocked by that, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're not coming to my uh, QAnon meeting next yeah, week? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. How do you feel about Steve Bannon being a re- yeah. You must be outraged. Let's go Brandon Nissel also. <laughs> <laughs> look, Nope is one of those films where audiences will walk out saying, what was that all about? Uh, and I don't necessarily think that clarity is the be-all and end-all, but I do think Nope suffers somewhat from struggling to make clear to its viewers uh, what it's tackling. This is no way an impediment to enjoying and savouring Peel's film, mm. you know, in part because we've had two films to get to know him and now how he works. So by now, audiences, I think, at least the ones I've talked with, are largely happy to talk about and ruminate on what things like the bloody floating shoe means, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's become one of the pleasures of watching a Jordan Peel film. But I think if this had been his first film and not Get Out, you know, I think we'd be having a really different conversation about this film. Yeah, I think um, right. And it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of um, M. Night Shyamalan, you know? Yeah. yeah how, how at a certain point you've got a brand and, and, and yeah. there are expectations. So discussing what things mean in a Peel mm. film has become, you know, part of the things. Yeah, it's part of the, part of the experience. Yeah, it's I part guess. of the unpacking of it now, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. But if this had been how he'd started, I, I imagine, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I think it would. I think it'd be quite tough to to get this greenlit. Uh, oh. You know, if this yeah, was yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the 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 Twilight Zone vignette that I talked about at the beginning offers a, a thematic tie into humanity's hubris at trying to 
control and monetize wild creatures. And yep. because of OJ's experience uh, with rearing horses to be used for Hollywood productions, he is more aware than any other character of the volatile nature and doesn't possess the arrogant assumption that he has a superior connection to the animals because he controls them. Mm. Uh, Stephen Yoon, so memorable in Minari, gets to riff on Saturday Night Live sketches and has the final deluded monologue before the film's first serious wow moment. Mm. But I was just going to say, what a presence Daniel Kaluuya is. I I thought he was so good as a a laconic everyman who has shades of like a young Clint Eastwood in the stillness of his performance. Yeah, I had the word laconic written down here as well. Yeah. So thanks for taking that from me. But he he does. I mean, he has the most, maybe the most magnetic eyes in cinema right now. Like, you know, there's so much going on in them and, you know, he's so watchable in everything I see him in. And in this, it's just it's truly economical acting. Yeah. When I when I when I sat down and thought about his performance in it, and there isn't a frame of the movie where you aren't on his side as well. Like, yeah. you know, he he's calm, rational, and direct. Uh, instead, Peel gives OJ's sister Kiki Palmer the motor mouth dialogue, yeah. peppered with one liners and smart ass comments that she trades barbs with Angel, the security camera installer who is trying to recover from his girlfriend dumping him as soon as she lands a role on a CW show. <laughs> But yeah, just as OJ Daniel Kaluuya, I, I really enjoyed his performance. Yeah. I thought he was so good, and it was a it was a great piece of casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, look fantastic, and look, I just want to go back to um, Stephen Ewan. Yeah, thanks for mentioning Minari because Minari was such a special film for me when yeah. I saw it. But look, I really dug the the dupe story. You know that child actor survived a chimp running murderously a mock on the sitcom he started, kind of ruining his stardom and leading him to become him into running this faintly cheesy Wild West reenactment park. Uh, part of this is, I think, Stephen Ewan's like he's got the subtle smarminess to his performance, yeah. you know. But it's covering for buried trauma, which I think makes it really interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's also just riveting enough and gruesome enough to be its own film if it wanted. It all, yeah. you know. Uh, though it ties back to the main plot, and like like you said, this pleasingly, hilariously nasty way, you know. Yeah. I mean that that. That gave me the gorehound giggles as I was sitting in the, my cinema seat. I was like, <laughs> ah, yes. You know, it's really elevated the whole experience for me yeah. watching that happen. It's so great. One of the best moments in the film for me. Yeah. Um, you know, it was bringing a grotesquely injured co-star of dupes into the scene unnecessarily cruel and exploitative. Yeah. Maybe, but then again, I've enjoyed more nastily exploitative moments in genre cinema before. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not, who am I to judge, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I actually think you mentioned it. But I think it's a tremendous decision that Jupe remembers the entire incident, not as it happened, but as it was recreated and performed via an SNL sketch. You know, mm. he's completely disconnected from his own reality and his own experience. Yeah. You know, playing a fictional version of himself in his own life at that yeah. point. You know, remembering an event that happened to him, this horribly traumatic event, but he's remembering it as a, a cartoonish reenactment, not the actual event. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, and and that if, and when we finally get the event. I appreciate the way it starts with in-camera footage of the sitcom, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that's great before everything goes wrong. And into a wandering camera that finds the fallout. You know, you don't see a lot, but the sound and, yeah, you know, carries so much weight. And Oh, for sure, yeah. And it, it is that case of, of of him not showing the actual carnage, but showing the, the effect of it. Yeah. And that's the, um, that's, you know, it's that whole, you know, what you can't see is, oh. is, is worse in your head. Um, yeah, I mean, sound ca- does yeah. so much there, and you know, there's a, you know, the camera will you'll briefly catch somebody hiding behind a seat somewhere, and yeah. it's like, oh, you know, yeah, that's so effective as well. Yeah, look, th- there are a few moments where Peel shows off his ability to freak us out. Um, the first m- for me was OJ's nighttime visits to the stables, and some visitors appear around corners or in pockets of darkness. Um, it really is a very simple but effective scene, and much later on, there's a scene that. Having chuckling in approval with the sheer inventiveness on display, a house literally showered in blood. Mm. Um, and this is a precursor to a strong final third where the film most resembles Spielberg's efforts in Jaws. Uh, the battery-powered inflatable men act like the barrels tied to the shark. Yeah, uh, They both indicate safety and danger. I mean, safety and you know where things are <laughs> in danger because you know of, of what it's capable of. But it is also Peel's choice of music that makes this feel celebratory and adventurous rather than dark and scary. Composer Michael Abels, who has scored both Peel's previous films, fills the soundtrack with upbeat moments, like the scenes in Jaws that have John Williams' music build to kind of like a, a Western movie excitement as the men three the three men hunt the shark further out into the ocean. Mm. I always remember thinking that as a kid going, because you know, everyone associates the, you know, the dun, 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 dun. Yeah. You know, yeah, like it's a like it's a John Ford Western or something. 
that music that they have. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's really not a horror yeah. trope at all in either film. Um, and OJ racing on his horse, using himself as bait with a brilliant resolution to the scene to achieve a truly cheer-inducing shot shows that Peel has ambitions that reach beyond the horror genre. Well, it's interesting because this feels like, in some ways, Peel's smallest and largest film at the same time, you know, mm. because it's so self-contained, mm. barely leaves the farm, you know? Yeah. Um, but as shot by Huit Van Huitema, mm. I mean, that's just the coolest cinematographer name in the world, he isn't did, it? Uh, he did uh, Spectre. Yeah, it's such a great yeah. name, man. Eh? Mm. And I assume the founder of Hoyt Cinemas? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> film looks glorious. I mean, the sky is so huge. I mean, I saw it in an IMAX. Right, yeah. And it looked amazing in IMAX. You know, the sky is so huge, airy, and full of danger, you know? Mm. Um, and Peel is, of course, a master, as you say, building suspense and keeping the threat hidden. The And you've, you've mentioned it as well, but the menace is all screened for a Jaws-like amount of time, mm. you know? Uh, which is a tremendous way to build this thread, of course. But mm. I love the alien presence itself when it did show up, you know? Mm. Uh, such a unique design. I don't think yeah. I've seen anything like it on screen before. It seemed to me to flirt with absolute ridiculousness, yeah. you know? Uh, a sort of Cormanesque concept given an A budget. Mm. Uh, it struck me as like the sort of creature that might have turned up in Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter's Dark Star, you know? Yeah. In which they had a beach ball as a, as, <laughs> as a, as a horror. But treated with seriousness and a real high-end production. Uh, so unique, and like I said, I saw it on an IMAX screen, so I really appreciated the splendor of seeing this weird floating jellyfish thing. You mm. know, oh, this is beautiful. Yeah, careening across the screen. You know, yeah, I think it's a really uh, interesting concept that Peel's come up with. That you know, uh, of the alien. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that was quite clever. Uh, mm. I must have been quite happy when he when he kind of came up with that that concept. Nope has a central plot that has a, a better balance than Peel's previous movie, film Us which felt as if theme overreached the substance, although Nope doesn't have half that film scares. Mm. I found us a lot more effective on the suspense, kind of keeping me engaged a lot more, whereas Nope has moments where you can kind of drift through because, you know, the, the threat's not quite there sure. all the time, whereas us, once it kicks in, it pretty much, you know, you're on the edge of your seat the whole way. But, but Nope shows a real growth from Peel, expanding beyond his previous preoccupations, and he's, he steps up his scope and ambition visually, as you mentioned. Mm. I'll also say that of the two alien invasion films we saw this month, one was on the small screen at home, and the other at the cinema. And this is one battle that can never be won by television, uh, because the solar cinema is on the big screen, and, and, and just for Nope alone, you know, the vastness of the vistas, the whistling wind whipping up the dusty terrain, the slow tension, the grand reveals, they all look, sound, and feel better on a big screen with an audience. Yeah, look, you're 100% right. And um, it, it's hard because Prey never got the option to be a film that we saw at the big yeah. screen. And that's it's, it's, it's terrible, really, because yeah. I actually think, and we'll get to it, but I think it yeah. would have looked great on the big screen yeah, as well. Yeah, totally. You know, it would have been a really good big screen experience as well, yeah. as no was. Look, yeah. uh, I would say I would be a hypocrite if I if I if I didn't say I do not care for chapter headings. Yeah, you know I I don't hate them like I hated the ones in the Suspiria remake. If you all yeah. remember how I felt about that, <laughs> yeah. uh, I probably should write if uh, if I'm being consistent. But I thought Suspiria was going for a purer horror tone, and I found the chapter breaks just broke that tone. Yeah. Uh, whereas Nope is more creepy than it is scary, but I still don't care for it. You know what I mean? Mm. I I don't know. Maybe it feels like it's trying to add more structure, but I just, I just don't love it. I, yeah, I think it was um, – yeah, I actually kind of disliked it more in Nope because the origi- the, the the remake of Suspiria kind of was this kind of arty, slightly pretentious, weird mess. Right, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. And, and felt like an exercise. You know, the, the performances were a bit removed yeah. and they had people in prosthetic makeup playing, you know, 90-year-old men, you know. It was just also was a bit weird, whereas in Nope – I, I couldn't even tell you what the headings are. Like, I'm just like, is this is this necessary? Like, I don't even really remember them because yeah. I mean, the only one that stood out for me is like Gordy because that led into the story about Gordy. Yeah, but yeah, I, but who, the who others? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I yeah. What I'm trying to say is like, it didn't annoy me as much as in Suspiria, but it kind of on reflection is it's even more unnecessary. No, it didn't. It didn't in the time annoy yeah. me more, but <laughs> but it's uh, I, I don't love it. I don't no, care no, it. I agree. Um, with you. And I, and I think. I, like that's what's set me off trying to find a copy of the script because I have a feeling that maybe some of some of this happened 
in post, right. you know, and I can't prove that because I can't find a copy of the script. Yeah. But uh, but uh, as I said before, I know that the the, the Gordy um, mm. title sequence part was added in post. It was an editing yeah. decision. So I wonder if other things like this were like just trying to, yeah, you know, introduce some sort of more formal structure to it. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to say Michael Wincott appears as the cameraman with that thousand yard stare, and he has that distinctive voice that sounds like he's drinking molten lava. Um, <laughs> I liked I liked him at home just yeah, being, being like obsessed watching you know old black and white. Yeah, I was going to say I did love seeing Michael Wincott, but I actually loved hearing Michael Wincott yeah. uh, more than I love seeing. Him. It makes me wish he and his gravelly voice showed up more often in the movies. Yeah, because uh, the last credited credited time he was on a big screen was in twenty fifteen. That's mad. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously been in TV before. Yeah. And he was in uh, 2017's Ghost in the Shell, but not right. uncredited. Um, so it came out, I guess. I haven't seen that film. Can't speak to it. Yeah. But yeah, that seems like a wild amount of time not to be being used. Yeah. He's I mean, a wonderful presence in this film. Yeah. And his, his, his voice, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. who, who competes with Michael Wincott's voice? I mean, like maybe Tony Todd, something like that. Yeah. Know, yeah. There's not many guys going around. Who can do that? <laughs> I do that. It's just. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, and now we're on to the second film we watched this month, which is Prey, uh, starring Amber Midthunder, Dakota Beavers, Dan D'Alegrio, and Stormy Kip. Story and written by Patrick Asen, and story and directed by Dan Trachtenberg. In early 18th century America, a Comanche woman, Naru, wants to prove to her tribe that she is a worthy hunter. After some of her hunting expedition are mysteriously slaughtered, it falls to Naru to defend her tribe from a lethal, invisible predator. Look, I've spoken about my love of the original Predator film, and mm. I'm sure most mm. of you lovely listeners and my co-hosts possess similar feelings towards it. But Predator has never had the sequel that holds a special place for people the way that Aliens and Terminator 2 Judgment Day do. Prey's strongest decision is to keep the story taut. There is no backstory of mercenaries on an alien planet like in 2010's Predators or in 2018's The Predator with, you know, smart talking Marines suffering PTSD teaming up with klutzy scientists and a US Army Ranger with an autistic son who may be the next step of human evolution or being hunted by the Predator who himself is being hunted by shadowy government. Oh, Jesus, who cares? That was your second favourite Predator, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> but seriously, I mean, who cares? I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Prey is without a doubt the most basic plot of the increasingly convoluted Predator plots. Yeah, good for it. And and even simpler than the original, in fact. Mm. Uh, Prey goes back in time and back to basics with a single protagonist against a single antagonist and plenty of kind of nameless victims between them. Yeah. Look, years ago, I remember pitching the idea to my colleague, Yeah. Uh, sadly not to a Hollywood executive, <laughs> that a Terminator sequel said in the Middle Ages would be money. You know, yeah. forget about constantly upping the firepower with each sequel. Instead, go more basic instead. Take away the modern machinery of war and really make your heroes work for their victory, making the situation as hopeless as you can. It was a good idea and one that Prey really sinks its predator claws into with relish. Uh, look, also years ago we talked about our favourite late in a franchise entries. Mm -hmm. So that, that were unexpectedly good. Prey would have handily made that last day. Yeah, sure. You know, because who would have thought that, what, five films deep? Seven, if you count alien crossover movies, we would have got a predator film, you know, as good as this. Yeah, that's right. You know? I mean, I'm with Jesse the Body Ventura, you know, who tweeted out his own praise of this new entry. Uh, this is a great old-fashioned genre filmmaking for me. It's simple, clean action horror film, which works, and that works in its favour. It's not beholden to its history uh, either. If, I mean, if for some unknown, inexplicable reason, you're listening to this podcast and you've never heard of The Predator, it won't matter. You could sit down and watch this film and enjoy it without any like, head-scratching moments or, you know, trying to figure it out. As, I mean, and as you said, it's like an hour and 30 and change as well, which is a, a blessedly good runtime for a film of this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the reaction to Prey reminds me of the re reaction to Top Gun Maverick, where people are like falling over themselves to heap praise upon it. Yeah. A and a new thirst exists for suspenseful, straightforward plots that have become a rarer commodity than they used to be. I really enjoyed this film, but I was quite surprised at just the, the pure love that was thrown onto this. And I'm like, this is a, it's a well told, but it's a very straightforward film. Yeah. But, that's, but people want that. And that's the same thing as the Top Gun Maverick. I, I mean, you know, yeah. I came out and I was like, oh, I really love Top Gun Maverick. I don't know. Five, ten years ago, if you talk a member could being released, I would be going, oh, yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it is It is a sign of, you know, yeah. the era we're living in, eh? You know, yeah. look, the start did feel a little sluggish, I thought, for an otherwise energetic action film, but I've always maintained that audiences are forgiving of moving openings. Mm. You know, we go into films wanting to be entertained, and for a while, at least, 
I think we can keep that like childlike enthusiasm and just, you know, desire to be amused going. It's second acts that let us down and bad endings that truly stick with us. Mm. So a film that takes a little bit of time to set up its world is not the worst thing. And the world is one of the things I appreciate, appreciated about Prey. There's a real effort to create an accurate uh, depiction of Comanche life, right down to the cast dubbing the film into Comanche, mm. uh, you know, as an alternative to the English language version. I don't know if you watched it with that version. Uh, um, I couldn't figure it out. I, I, I was so gutted. I, look, if I wanted to be nitpicky about this film, the dialogue in the film is a little basic. Yeah, it is. It really is. And, and kind of the way it's delivered as well, but also, you know... They're not no, it the, is. Yeah. And, and the, the character's not actually given much dimension from the dialogue, but... it. it and I was disappointed that I wasn't aware that there was a Comanche dub yeah, version yeah, yeah. when I watched it because it is exactly what I wanted to see. Yeah, it, it would have led in authenticity and helped the immersion even more. And, and I, I can tell you, I, because I didn't know it at first as well. Mm. I then found it. And I, I, I was giving it a watch last night, and it's a better experience. So if you haven't yeah. seen it yet, um, find the Comanche version. Choose the Comanche version. It's yeah. really cool. It's great hearing the, the real words spoken, you know. But yeah. I also appreciate that the, vil- the villainous fur trappers aren't dubbed. Yeah. You know, which right. is, um, I mean, we get to hear them as the alien invaders. They would sound like to, you know, Naru, the, yeah. the heroine. Uh, I mean, different experience if you're watching this in France, I guess, you know. Yeah. But it works a treat to English-speaking audiences. I think that's a really clever decision not yeah. to make them, you know, English-speaking characters, but, yeah. you know. Look, director Trachtenberg builds tension in a couple of standout scenes. Perhaps the most effective is when Naru and her loyal, scene-stealing dog... Ah, that dog. <laughs> he is the goodest good boy. <laughs> they try to outrun a battle-scarred bear in a viscerally intense scene oh. straight out of The Revenant. Um, that it concludes by introducing our protagonist to the Predator and its terrifying, invisible fury. It's just a fantastic moment. The blood pouring over the chameleonic form to reveal its presence and shape is a great shot and to see the alien overcome such a powerful enemy as the bear it raises the stakes for our heroine mm. and shows her what she is truly up against yeah yeah um but what i loved about it is that it's actually kind of a, a, a two-fold great scene because just if that was the bear chasing her and the dog mm. that alone was like man that's a great scene yeah but then to have that on top of it yeah and that predator moment is just yeah that that was a great great moment yeah 100 percent agree and yeah. i love the re- the way they use the blood to reveal the outline of the predator yeah. it's just really nice it's, yeah. it's a clever idea yeah. um look fantastic you know there are some really gorgeous images in prey um which is why as we were speaking about it would have been great to see it on a big yeah. screen That's right. um you know the burnt out woods where the predator takes on the hapless french traps looks great those superhero films are rather spoiled for ash and gray fight scenes you know yeah which is a shame. But the woods and cliffs, the fact that we're actually out there in a real environment a lot of the time, mm. sounds like the bare minimum, right? But yet yeah, yeah. it's somehow just unusual nowadays. I mean, it's a godsend. And they use it well in the action as well, whether it's the cloaked predator chasing its prey, you know, through fields of grass, or as you say, you know, that bear scene where Naru dives under the water and up into the beaver den. Mm. That's really nice work, you know. Um, there's plenty of gruesome touches too, you mm. know. That's a great gruesome touch. But I love, uh, you know, the predator decapitator decapitating a dude with his shield or, you know, yeah. uh, throwing a bear trap at a guy's head, you know. it's It doesn't forget to give us those sort of, yeah, you know, thrills, right. yeah. Yeah, it's um, – I, I did wonder where, like, suddenly it, it, it turned into that kind of post-apocalyptic cloud. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. like, what? How, how did we get here? Like, how did, how did, how did the world suddenly turn to that? Um, <clears throat> look, another pleasing element is the growth of the character. She learns from her mistakes, which I yes. like. And look no further than her near-fatal encounter with that enemy of all late 70s and early 80s TV series characters, Quicksand. And it's a great sequence that has satisfying repercussions in the final reel of the movie. Mm. I really like that. And I like mm. that she actually, we saw her learn from that. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Um, she wants to prove herself, but it's clear that she's not good enough at the beginning, which I think is great. You know, yeah. It doesn't make her um, just someone who's tough and ready but not seen to be tough and ready. It makes yeah. you someone who needs to get better, you know? Yeah. Uh, so she has to find his way to survive and win. Um, and, you know, like you say, she fails, she messes up, but she stays alive, often precisely, often precisely because she's not a threat, you know? Mm. Um, I like that contrast with the predator is also introduced proving itself, you know? Taking on one animal at a time, you know, there's kills a snake and then he kills a wolf and then the bear, he's, you know... And eventually humans, as it figures out which are the next dangerous creatures, as it sort of develops its own hunting pecking order, you know? Yeah. That's a really good good idea as well. Um, and like every decent final girl in every horror film, her best trait might be that she sees what others don't, mm-hmm. that there's something else out there beyond the cougars and scary big bears that she immediately, that immediately gets me on her side because, you know, she recognises 
the danger facing them, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and hey, obviously, absolute kudos for casting actual Native American actors as well in this, mm. you know, and getting them to do the, you know, yeah. um, the, the Comanche version of this. Yeah. Uh, I heard as well that they even, um, some of the dialogue was written in a way so that they could actually kind of dub, uh, dub it over with, well, you know, so that it would... That makes yeah, that makes sense to me because when I was watching dubbed, it looked really good. Like mm. it was a really good dub. You know, the the words uh, matched up with the mouth movements quite quite yeah. well, which is amazing considering obviously that not. Yeah, that's right. But perhaps Prey's greatest achievement is returning legitimacy to a franchise that has been flailing. I mean, oh, flailing man. like a drowning person. Tell me about it, bro. Yeah, flailing like a drowning person, making lots of noise and commotion, but never moving forward or finding anything to cling to. It never seemed to know which direction or tone or story suited it best. It is therefore high irony that Prey is the first Predator film to not receive a cinema release, while garbage sequels like mm. Alien vs. Predator, mm. Requiem, or The Predator got the big screen treatment. Um, but the other thing that, with all of these films um, that I mentioned before, they all made money. Uh, yeah. So, you know, even though we sit there and kind of, well, I sit there anyway and just go, this is, well, how is this getting made? Well, they're making back, yeah. you know, not not you know, not massive scales, but they are yeah. making back their budget plus more. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's look, I haven't looked into this. You you can probably go away and read about it, or we'll put a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But there is this was one of those weird like HBO's decision to you know pull a bunch of films. There's something going on between studios that caused this to be dumped on right. streaming. You know, it's not as simple as like, ah, oh, we don't think it's good enough for the cinema. It's like yeah. there's some weird contractual deal that happened or some, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, some financial malarkey yeah. basically that yeah. robbed us of seeing this on the big screen. Because yeah. I'd love to have seen this on the big yeah, screen. Yeah, it would have been great. I mean, everything we're talking about, all those moments would have been even more viscerally intense. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, especially, you know, the bear sequence or, or as you say, even the vistas is a similar thing to note, but you know, you've got these great American vistas. Yeah. Um, the sound design, things mm. like that. Uh, the suspense would be ramped up even more. Mm. Um, and there's a difference between, you know, sitting on my couch with a, a coffee, you know, with all the lights on kind yeah. of, you know, hearing the dishwasher going while, you know, yeah, while, yeah. while it's happening versus, you know, yeah, totally. being immersed in a movie. Yeah. Me propped up in bed watching on my laptop or something. Yeah. That's hardly the ideal, eh? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Hey, so, uh, what was your favourite film this month? Uh, look, I actually enjoyed pretty much everything that I saw that I've, that I've talked about. Um, really enjoyed Prey, really enjoyed Nope, and uh, and enjoyed Bullet Train as well. But um, the one I wanted to talk to is actually an older film that uh, you know, most listeners have probably seen, but I only got around to watching now, which was Notes on a Scandal. Oh, um, cool. I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. yeah, I recommend it. Right. I really enjoyed it, and it's just one of those ones that passed me by, and, and, and I was looking through, and I was like, huh. There's this one. I kind of heard of it. I'll check it out. Um, the actual plot is like, eh, but the performances is everything to watch. Mm. And it's Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett. And, oh, I know the film, of course, yeah. yes. And it's so much fun. It's kind of this delicious um, kind of black comedy thriller almost. And But, but um, Judy Dench is just magnificent. So good in it. And we've spoken about that thing with British actors, they know what film they're in. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you're Gary Oldman, you know whether you're in, you know, The Darkest Hour or you know whether you're in True Romance. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and Judy Dench is the same. Mm. You know, she knows whether she's in, you know, Casino Royale or mm. Die Another Day. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Um, or, or she knows whether she's in Notes on the Scandal or, you know, Shakespeare yeah. in Love. And she's so good in this. And, and Kate Blanchett is as well. She's fantastic. A very difficult character for her to pull off. Mm. Right? There's a lot more for, um, for uh, a lot more kind of glee for, for Judy Dench's character. Um, but Kate Blanchett's one is a real tightrope walk of, yeah. a, of, a, of a role to, to play. Oh, um, well, she's a magnificent actress. Yeah, yeah, but both of them together are just yeah. so good. Uh, yeah, really recommend this one. If, if you haven't seen it, and even if you have seen it back in the day, give it a rewatch because uh, it was just kind of one of those, yeah, really engaging. And uh, I just thought Judy Dench was so good in it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, what about you? What's the- oh, well, look, tough one for me this month because I watched a few films and dug into some really enjoyable classics, some of which are, uh, I watched in my COVID week, you know, just mm-hmm. on the couch, rugged up. Uh, but the film that surprised me the most was The Sisters Brothers. Right. Uh, a Western about two bounty hunter brothers with the surname Sisters, played by John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, on the trail of Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed. Right. Uh, the film from Rust and Bone director Jacques Audiard, 
took me on a surprising, like, really twisting journey. Mm-hmm. And it has a great, great cast. It's also a real pleasure, I, I, I think, to watch Riley in a non-comic role, you know? Mm-hmm. I think we just think of him as, you know, um, stepbrothers, you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, but he's such an underrated dramatic performer. Yeah. And this was a real pleasure of a film. I really nice. I adored it, you know? Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to uh, check that one out. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and so the music we're going out to, Simon? Is... I wear my sunglasses at night. Yeah, by Corey Hart. Yeah, from the movie Nope. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite memorably, um, we, we haven't got the slowed down version. You know, we're at yeah, Brooklyn. yeah, 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 yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, and and I always associate often associate this with uh, playing Grand Theft Auto Vice City because um, it was on the uh, radio station when you're running around on that. But um, yeah, I remember this from the '80s, and uh, Simon used to have this on tape, didn't you? I had it on tape and played it in my Walkman. Yep. Yeah, yep. Great while, wearing, while wearing your sunglasses. Well, at night. <laughs> I wasn't cool enough. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, what? I was 17, I think, at the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so thanks to everyone for listening. Yeah. And uh, we will see you next month. All right. Take care. Cheers.